This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Because of the length of both of our shows tonight, it's another case of no time for chatter. Let's get at her. So here from 1950 is Sergeant Preston of the Yukon with the uphill sled. The challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police. In his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. And King on Husky. Gold. Gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. With Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog, Yukon King, as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. trail down the hillside was steep and narrow. Shorty Sprague braked his sled hard to keep it under control during the sharp descent. Easy, Curly. Easy, Dave. Easy. The passenger on Shorty's sled was a beautiful blonde girl clad in a lynx parka. Both Shorty and the girl had their eyes fixed on another dog team that was climbing the trail several hundred yards below them. Finally, the girl spoke. Shorty, isn't that one of Hasler's men driving that sled? It sure is, Miss Gilbert. His name is Joe Gault. Joe Gault? Why, he's the worst of the lot. He's big and he's mean. Maybe we'd better pull over to one side and wait till his sled goes by. Don't you worry, ma'am. We're going downhill. So we've got the right-of-way. Shorty took it for granted that the uphill sled would give way according to the custom of the trail. Easy, But as the two teams drew close together, he realized that Galt had no intention of pulling aside. A moment later, the two teams came face to face. Shorty halted his team with difficulty, barely in time to prevent a clash between the opposing sled dogs. He shouted angrily at Galt. Hey, what's the idea of blocking the trail? Get that team of yours out of the way, Spray. The downhill sled has a right of way. It's your job to pull aside. Besides, I'm carrying a lady. Maybe you don't hear so good. I said get that team of yours out of the way. I'm not taking orders from you or any of the rest of Hassler's wolves. The only direction this team is moving is straight ahead. For a sawed-off runt, you're talking mighty cocky. I guess you need a little lesson in manners. Don't you dare start a fight with Shorty. Well, you're twice as big as he is. Don't you worry, Miss Gilbert. I've run up against polecats his size before. Why, you? Golf's punch caught Shorty squarely in the face and crumpled him over backwards with blood streaming from his nose and mouth. You rotten bully! That's just the beginning. Wait till you see what else I'm going to do to him. All right, get As Shorty struggled weakly to his feet, 
Galt was ready with another blow to the head. But Shorty rolled with a punch and came up fighting. He defended himself gamely, but the fight was unequal from the first. Galt was a full head taller than Shorty and at least 50 pounds heavier. In a few minutes, he had battered the smaller man into submission. I guess you learned your lesson, Sprague. Just to make sure you don't forget it. With deliberate cruelty, Galt jerked his helpless opponent up off the ground and smashed him in the face with another terrific punch. You unspeakable beast. Let me give you some advice, girlie. The Yukon is no place for a woman. If you're smart, you go back where you came from and stay there. I came up here to operate my uncle's mine. And that's exactly what I intend to do. All right. You've had your warning. I'll get your team off the trail. Here, give me those traces. Ha, there, you huskies. Galt drove Shorty's sled into the snowbank at one side of the trail. And with a final threat to Marsha, he returned to his own sled. Remember what I said. The Yukon is no place for a woman. Marsha Gilbert was still trying to revive the unconscious Shorty several minutes later when Sergeant Preston drove up the trail. trouble here. Can I help? Oh, I'd be grateful if you would. I'm Sergeant Preston, Northwest Mounted Police. And I'm Marsha Gilbert. Glad to know you, Miss Gilbert. What happened to your friend here? He was beaten up by a man named Joe Galt. Joe Galt, eh? That will soon bring him around. Incidentally, who is he? His name is Shorty Sprague. He's one of my employees at the Snow Queen Mine. Well, this friend he ought to help. <sighs> Holy smoke. What hit me? Take it easy, Shorty. The fight's all over. Who, who are you? He's Sergeant Preston of the Mounted Police, Shorty. Howdy, oh, Sergeant. <laughs> Guess I must look pretty funny. Well, you've got a black eye and a split lip, but your nose is still in place. It doesn't feel that way. Suppose you tell me what the fight was all about. We were going downhill. Joe Galt was on his way up. I expected Galt to steer his sled off the trail. He should have. But he didn't. He blocked the way and tried to bulldoze me into pulling aside. I gave him an argument. Guess maybe that is my mistake. It didn't matter, Shorty. No matter what you did, he'd have found some excuse for picking a fight. What's Gold got against, Shorty? Nothing. Except that he works for me. What do you mean? Gold wasn't acting on his own hook. He works for a man called Hassler, Martin Hassler. I've heard the name. Heads a mining syndicate of some kind, doesn't he? Yes, that's right, Sergeant. He's been buying up all the claims on the Last Chance Creek. The only property he hasn't been able to get his hands on is the Snow Queen Mine. Which belongs to you. Yes. I inherited it from my uncle six months ago. Hassler's been trying to buy me out ever since I took over the mine. I take it you aren't selling? You bet I'm not, Sergeant. The Snow Queen is worth twice what he's offering. Hassler thought it'd be easy to swindle me because I'm a woman. And I'm new to the mining business. When he found out I wasn't quite so gullible as he thought, he changed his tactics. How so? He began trying to intimidate me, to bully me into accepting his offer. He evidently intends to make things so unpleasant for me, I'll, I'll be glad to sell out. So that's why Galt picked a fight with Shorty. Yes. He and the rest of Hassler's men have already scared off four of my crew. Shorty here and my foreman, Mike Muldoon, are the only employees I have left. I could arrest Galt on a charge of assault and battery, but he probably wouldn't get more than a few days in jail. He deserves life. That still wouldn't stop Hassler. What if it wouldn't be better for me to camp here in the neighborhood for a few days and look into the matter? 
Might be able to get something on, Hassler, that would justify legal action. Sergeant, if you could do that, it would... Well, it'd be wonderful. All right, I'll see what I can do. Sergeant Preston drove to the Snow Queen mine with Marsha Gilbert and Shorty Sprague. Marsha introduced the sergeant to her foreman, Mike Muldoon, an elderly, bald-headed man who had formerly worked for her uncle. She also invited the sergeant to stay for supper. You said you used to work for Miss Gilbert's uncle, didn't you, Mr. Muldoon? Mm. That's right, Sergeant. I worked for Dave Gilbert for over a year before he died. How much gold are you taking out of the Snow Queen these days? Oh, uh, she's been paying about $100 a day lately. Your operating expense must run nearly that high. Oh, yes, it does. We're hardly making any profit right now. Mine's not petering out, is it? Oh, definitely not, Sergeant. The ore is running pretty low grade at the moment, but... I have a hunch the vein gets a lot richer farther on. I hope you're right, Miss Gilbert. I'm sure of it, Mike. Uncle Dave wrote me just before he died that the Snow Queen was good for four or five hundred dollars a day. And he certainly wasn't the kind to make rash statements. Quiet, King. Sounds like someone's coming. What? Looks like Joe Galt. What? That's who it is. Galt. I wonder what he wants. He's got a lot of nerve coming here after what happened today. I'll go and talk to him. Yes? What is it? No one here at the Snow Queen has been stealing our gold, Muldoon. Of all the barefaced lies. You've got no right to come around here and make a statement like that. Hey, shut up. I'm doing the talking. All right. All right. There's no call to get you tough. What I mean to say you don't mind with me. Muldoon hasn't got the backbone to stand up to gold. I'll go talk to him myself. Sit still, Miss Gilbert. Maybe I'd better have a few words with Joe Galt. What seems to be the trouble out here? Hey. Marty. That's right. I'm Sergeant Preston, Northwest Mounted Police, if you want a formal introduction. And you're Joe Galt. How come you know my name? I heard how you beat up Shorty Sprague on the trail this afternoon. It was his own fault. I told him... I won't argue the point. For the moment, at least. Just tell me what the trouble is right now. The Snow Queen crew has been robbing us. Can you prove that? I... I know I can't prove then it, Then you'd I... better tone down your language. Listen, Marty. You're not wise to the setup around here yet. If you were, you wouldn't... I've seen enough to know that your accusation is probably untrue. Now, if you want to report a robbery, do it in the proper way. Let the police make the charges. I've already told you the Snow Queen crew robbed us. They took at least a thousand dollars worth. Either they kicked through with that gold, or I'm gonna. They're going to what? You're mighty brave, aren't you, with that big Malamute to back you up, King? Go back, fella. Go on over there in the corner and lie down. Unwillingly, King backed away from the door and lay down in the far corner of the room as his master had commanded. Just stay quiet, boy, and don't move no matter what happens. Understand, fella? All right, Galt. Now, what was it you were going to tell me? Galt stared sullenly at the Mountie for a moment, measuring the power in his broad shoulders and the cool determination in his steel blue eyes. Finally, his glance wavered. What? Never mind. Sorry, I'm not quite as small as Shorty. Maybe you could arrange to wear stilts at our next chat. You're making a big mistake, Marty. My boss has plenty of pull in the right places. He can have you broken any time he says a word. This conversation never was very interesting, and it gets less interesting by the minute. 
You'd better be on your way, Galt. I'm leaving. You'll be hearing mighty soon from Martin Hassman. Sergeant Preston declined Marsh's invitation to put up for the night at the mine bunkhouse. Instead, he pitched camp in the hills overlooking Last Chance Creek. He waited for over an hour after seeing the last light glimmer out in the buildings at the Snow Queen Mine. Then he announced to King, We're going down there, fellow. Have a look inside that mine shaft. It's a little too much of a coincidence that the gold should start featuring out just when Hassler's trying to buy the mine from Miss Gilbert. I have a hunch we'll find that the Snow Queen is just as rich as ever. Come on, King. I'll take a lantern to use inside the shaft. The Snow Queen mine consisted of a large tunnel into the hillside, with several cross cuts and side galleries leading off the main shaft. Sergeant Preston examined the cuttings in the main tunnel and then began to explore the side galleries. Well, King, the mine doesn't look any richer than Maldon said. Maybe my suspicions were all wrong. It's better, fella. You're right, someone's coming. Better blow out the lantern. Let's hope he didn't see the glow. Sounds like he turned down the next gallery. Come on, King, we're following. Creeping back to the main shaft, Sergeant Preston felt his way through the darkness to the opening of the next gallery. In the distance, he could see the glow of the mysterious visitor's lantern. Cautiously, he made his way closer. The man's back was turned toward Sergeant Preston. He was using a pick to loosen large chunks of earth and rock from one wall of the tunnel. The sergeant watched for several minutes and then stepped forward into the circle of light from the man's lantern. Put up your hands, Muldoon. Preston! Why? What are you doing here? I was about to ask you the same thing, but I guess there's no need to. It's quite obvious. I, I just came down here... To rob your employer, just as you've been robbing her ever since she took over the mine. No, no, you've got me all wrong, Sergeant. Don't lie, Muldoon. I wondered why the gold should start petering out just at this particular time. Now I know. Why, what do you mean? The Snow Queen mine's just as rich as it ever was. But you covered up the biggest gold vein so Miss Gilbert wouldn't know it existed. I suppose you've been coming down here at night all along, chipping away at the gold and covering up your traces before morning. You're pretty smart, Preston, but not smart enough. As Muldoon spoke, he swung his pick in a sudden vicious blow at the sergeant's head. But the sergeant sidestepped, and at the same moment, King charged. Help! Help get this dog away from me! Let go of that pick and King will let you up. All right, all right, I'll let go of it. All right, King. On guard, boy. Stand up, Muldoon. That's better. Now start marching, and don't try any more false moves. Sergeant Preston marched his prisoner to the mine bunkhouse and held him there for the rest of the night under the watchful eyes of King. The following morning, he reported what had happened to Marsha Gilbert. So that's why the mine has been paying so poorly. I, I didn't take very much. Whether you took $10 or $10,000 does not matter. The point is I relied on you because you worked for my uncle. Now I find you're just a common thief. Shall I arrest him, Miss Gilbert, or do you prefer not to prosecute? What do you advise, Sergeant? I doubt if you'll get your gold back, whatever you do. Furthermore, if you do press charges, you'll have to go to Dawson for the trial, which means you won't be here to keep an eye on the mine. Under the circumstances, I think you might as well let him go. Very well. I'll do as you say, Sergeant. You're fired, Mike, but I won't press charges. Get your things together over at the bunkhouse and get off my property within the next half hour. All right, all right. 
I'm leaving right away. Why did you ask me whether I wanted to prosecute, Sergeant? I thought you'd arrest him automatically in a case like this. Ordinarily, I would. But I had a reason for letting him go. What do you mean? Has it occurred to you that Muldoon's little game fitted in very neatly with Hassler's interests? I don't understand. By covering up the richest ore streak in your mind, Muldoon made it seem that the Snow Queen was in danger of petering out. Maybe he was less interested in robbing you than he was in persuading you to accept Hassler's offer. You mean he's really been working for Hassler all along? It's possible. I think we'll find out for sure by letting Muldoon go free. How will we find out? When he leaves here, I'll trail him. I have a hunch he'll go straight to Hassler. Sergeant Preston's hunch proved correct. After leaving the Snow Queen mine, Muck Muldoon went several miles down the creek on foot to the office of the Hassler Mining Syndicate. Martin Hassler, a heavy-set, bearded man, was chewing on a cigar and talking to his henchman, Joe Galt. He looked up in surprise as Muldoon entered the office. Muldoon! What in thunder are you doing here? I've been fired. Fired? What for? I was down in the mine last night, chipping away at the main ore streak. The Mountie caught me red-handed. You mean the same Mountie that run me off the property yesterday? That's the one. Oh, you blundering fool. Was it my fault? How did I know he'd be spying on me? You should have used your head, that's how. This'll queer the whole deal. Yes. You'll never sell now that she's found out about that hidden vein. What are you going to do, boss? Uh, I'm afraid there's only one thing we can do. What's that? Get rid of Miss Marsha Gilbert once and for all. I mean, kill her? Let's not use that word, kill. What we'll do is blow up her cabin at night. Now, if she happens to be inside at the time, <laughs> well, it'll be just too bad. It'll be too bad, all right, for her. Only look, boss, isn't that taking an awful chance? How so? I mean that Marty, Sergeant Preston. If anything happens to the dame, won't he suspect us right away? Yeah, that's right. You fellows are the first ones he'll think of. Now, wouldn't it be better to wait till he's out of the neighborhood? Don't worry about the Mountie. I've got ways of putting the quietus on him. Official ways. Besides, even if he does suspect us, there'll be no way of proving we did it. So long as we don't leave any clues... What do you want us to do? There's a girl sleep right there at the mine office. Yes, that's right. She uses the back room as her private living quarters. All right. Then listen. The three of us will go over and scout the place tonight. If the coast is clear, we'll plant some dynamite right under the office wall. Enough to blast the building to splinters. And we'll light the views and make our getaway. How much dynamite should we use? We don't want to cave in the mine tunnel. We'll leave that to Muldoon. He knows all about blasting. Okay, I'll handle the dynamite. But you two better keep a good lookout while I'm planting it. Don't worry about that. Just be ready to start at 10 o'clock tonight. In the meantime, go on over to the bunkhouse and stow your duffel. Mike Muldoon left the syndicate office. As the door closed behind him, Joe Galt turned to Hassler and said... You sure Muldoon ain't right about that Monty? Maybe it would be smarter to wait till he's out of the neighborhood. <laughs> Muldoon doesn't know it. But I'm counting on that Monty being around to investigate the explosion. Huh? What's Mike, the idea? Mike Muldoon just got fired this morning. 
That means he's got good cause for harboring a grudge against the Gilbert girl. What about it? When the Mountie looks around for clues, suppose he finds Muldoon's body lying somewhere close by, maybe 20 or 30 yards from the blast, with scraps of wreckage littered all around him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm beginning to get it. It'll look like Muldoon set the dynamite for revenge, but didn't use a long enough fuse. Before he could get away, the stuff exploded. And Muldoon got knocked out by flying wreck. Knocked out? Or maybe even killed. How's it sound? <laughs> You're a smart man, Hassler. A mighty smart man. Unknown to Hassler and his two henchmen, Sergeant Preston had trailed Muldoon down the creek to the syndicate office. Returning to the Snow Queen mine... The Mountie reported what he had seen to Marsha Gilbert. Then you were right, Sergeant. He's been working for Hassler all along. Looks that way. In any case, he's on Hassler's side now. What do you suppose they'll do next? I don't know. But it may be something drastic. Why do you say that? Well, now that you know about that rich vein of gold, Hassler probably figures you'll hang on to the mine tighter than ever. You'll have to do something drastic to get it away from you. Yes, you're right. I never thought of that. Does the prospect scare you? Not a bit, Sergeant. Good. I rather think Hassler will overstep himself on his next move. When that happens, we'll have him right where we want him. Are you going to stay here at the mine till he shows his hand? No, I don't think I'd better. That might scare them off. However, I will camp in the hills where I can keep an eye on things. And I'll have King patrol your property at night. In that case, I certainly won't worry. <laughs> you know, I have almost as much faith in King as I do the mounted police. <laughs> Marsha Gilbert had gone to bed, and the cluster of buildings at the Snow Queen mine were shrouded in darkness. Only the northern lights flaming across the sky relieved the gloom of the Yukon night as Martin Hassler and his two companions approached their destination. What about the dynamite, Muldoon? Are you sure you brought enough to do the job right? Don't worry. I've got just the right charge. When the blast goes off, the mine office will be blown to smithereens. But the tunnel will hardly be touched. I'll just make sure the fuse is plenty long. We don't want the stuff going off in our faces. At that moment, King was patrolling the wooded slope just in back of the mine buildings. His keen ears caught the rustle of underbrush and the faint whisper of voices in the distance. Pricking up his ears, he trotted forward in the direction of the sound. A moment later, the shifting wind conveyed to his nostrils the scent of human beings. Instantly, the great dog charged down the slope. Hey, what's that? It was Galt who first heard King's snarls and saw the charging husky loom up out of the darkness. It's a watchdog. Look out. Look out. It'll make too much noise. Get him off of me. Do something. King's first assault had knocked Galt off his feet. A second later, he turned to deal with Hassler, who was kicking at him wildly, fearful of the husky's slashing fangs. Meanwhile, Muldoon had dropped the sticks of dynamite he was carrying and was running toward the mine entrance, where he knew a pile of loose lumber was stacked. He snatched up a heavy piece of wood. This'll fix him. Returning to the scuffle, he found Galt and Hassler struggling frantically to ward off the dog's savage lunges. Look out, I'll get him. Husky whirled just as Muldoon swung his two-by-four. The blow struck King on the head, leaving him dazed and bleeding. Again, Muldoon swung, and this time the great dog sank to the ground unconscious. Yeah, good work, Muldoon. Yeah. 
What do we do now, boss? Muldoon, you gather up the dynamite, plant it under the mine office like we planned. All right, all right. Don't you stick around here. Keep a lookout in this direction. Right. I'll go over on the other side of the mine buildings and keep a lookout on that side. And while I'm at it, I'll listen in here if anyone starts moving around in the bunkhouse. Now, wait. What happens when I'm through planting the dynamite? When you finish, come and get me. I'll be standing by that big pine over near the bunkhouse. And we'll circle back and join Galt on this side. That understood? Yes, hi, Sammy. Me too. Don't forget, Maldon. Make that fuse plenty long. A short time before King attacked the three crooks, Sergeant Preston had left his camp and headed toward the Snow Queen mine. He intended to inspect the area periodically throughout the night to make sure that all was well. As the sergeant neared the mine, Galt heard his footsteps approaching through the darkness. The crook ducked hastily out of sight behind a clump of rocks. Holy smoke. It's the Mountie. For a moment, Galt's hand strayed toward his gun. And then he realized that the noise of a shot would ruin Hassler's carefully laid scheme. But he knew, too, that he must act quickly before the Mountie discovered his companions. As Sergeant Preston passed directly in front of his hiding place, Galt sprang out at the Mountie. I'll fix you, Mountie! Galt! Yeah, that's me, and how do you like this? The crook's sudden attack caught Sergeant Preston off guard, and he staggered under the impact of Galt's terrific punch. But he recovered quickly and smashed back at his assailants. You should keep your left up, Galt. No. Why, you... Galt struck out savagely, but this time Sergeant Preston blocked the blow. The Mountie slashed back. For the next few minutes, the two men slugged it out toe-to-toe. Gradually, Galt weakened under the sergeant's punishment. Twice he went down. And as he picked himself up the second time, Sergeant Preston said... Well, what about it? You had enough? Yeah. Yeah, I've had enough money. Don't hit me again. With his attention concentrated on the fight, That's Sergeant all. Preston had failed to hear Hassler and Muldoon know. sneaking up behind him. Yes, let me go. Now, as Galt struggled weakly to his feet, Hassler stepped forward and brought the butt of a revolver smashing down on the Mountie's head. Oh! Hey, you've got here just in time, Hassler. What are we going to do with the Mountie now that you've knocked him out? I'll tell you, Muldoon. We're going to do the same thing with him that we're going to do with you. Oh! <laughs> you knocked Maldon out, too. Yeah, this was as good a time as any. Now we'll have to drag them both over near the mine office. You're going to fix it so the mountain gets blown up, too? It's the only thing we can do. Come on, hurry up. Give me a hand. That fuse isn't going to burn forever. Yeah. Galt half-dragged, half-carried the limp body of Sergeant Preston, while Hassler did the same with Muldoon. The mine foreman's body was deposited about 20 yards from the mine office. Then Hassler lifted the sergeant's leg. Here, I'll help you carry the Mountie. Where do you want him put? Right up next to the mine office, near the dynamite. What's the idea? We want to make sure Muldoon can be recognized. With the Mountie, it doesn't matter. In fact, it'll suit me fine if he's blown to bits. Okay. All right, lay him down right here. Yeah. Hey, look at that fuse, boss. It's almost burned down to the end. Come on, let's get out of here. Fast. Meanwhile, the great dog, King, was stirring painfully at the spot where the three crooks had left him. As consciousness came flooding back, the dog's instinct told him that his master was in danger. He sprang up and began running back and forth frantically, seeking to pick up the sergeant's scent. Suddenly, King's ears caught the sound of running feet, and a second later, his nostrils picked up the scent he was looking for. The great dog sprinted forward. Warily, King circled past the two men running side by side through the darkness. Guided by his nostrils, he headed straight for the spot where he knew his master must be lying. A moment later, he saw the sergeant's body, and close by it, the sputtering fuse. King knew the meaning of such an object from past experience, and instinctively he tramped out the fuse with his trail-hardened paws. Then he turned to the sergeant and began licking his face. 
A safe distance away, Galt and Hassler stood waiting in vain for the unexpected explosion. Finally, Galt spoke. That dynamite should have gone off long ago. Something must have gone wrong. Yeah. We dumped Preston. There wasn't more than 30 seconds left in that fuse. What do you suppose happened? Uh, the fuse fizzled out. That's what happened. Come on. We'll have to go back and light it again. Sergeant Preston was just coming to as Galt and Hassler approached the building. In the darkness, the two crooks failed to realize what was happening till they were less than 10 yards away. Hey, look, Hassler. Yeah. It's the Mountie's dog. Yeah, you're right. And the Mountie's getting up on his feet. I'll soon fix that. Galt reached for his gun, but before he could draw, King charged toward him at lightning speed. The revolver was barely out of his holster when the great dog leapt on the crook, knocking the gun from his hand. A second later, the other crook recovered from his confusion and made a frantic effort to draw. I'll get him. But by this time, Sergeant Preston was on his feet. As Hassler reached for his gun, the Mountie fired from the hip. Oh, my arm! Stay where you are, Hassler. Hey, call your dog off, Preston. All right, King. Let him up, boy. I'm good. Get up on your feet, Galt. Yeah. All right. All right. Just don't let that dog get any closer. Who's that lying over there on the ground? Is that Muldoon? Yeah. It's him, all right. If he's dead, you'll both hang. He's not dead. He's just unconscious. We were going to wait till after the explosion, and then... Shut up, you fool! So you were planning an explosion, eh? I suppose you intended to blow me up along with Miss Gilbert, and then leave Muldoon's body nearby so it would look like his work. It wasn't my idea. It was Hassler's. He planned the whole thing. sniveling fool. It doesn't matter who planned it. You were both in on it, and you'll both stand trial for attempted murder. You're under arrest in the name of the Queen. Rest in you must have been born under a lucky star. If that dynamite fuse hadn't fizzled out, you'd be in kingdom come this minute. Huh? I didn't know I'd had such a close call. And what makes you so sure the fuse fizzled out? Why, it must have. Nobody put it out. I wonder if King didn't have something to do with that. <coughs> well, fellow, I suppose I'll never know for sure... But I can tell you one thing, boy. I'm mighty glad this case is closed. Now, here's Sergeant Preston with a preview of our next adventure, The Case King Takes Over. The man who murdered Mike Kramer's friend, Sam, left a trail that even a Chichaco could have followed. Mike and I were sure we could bring the killer to justice without any trouble at all. You see, I trusted Mike. I didn't know that he was in on the murder scheme and that his job was to kill me. Be sure to listen to this exciting adventure Wednesday. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Wednesday... Until September, when we shall resume our regular Monday, Wednesday, and Friday broadcasts. This is J. Michael wishing you goodbye and good luck till next Wednesday. So long. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Stay tuned for Father Knows Best next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. And now, from an episode first aired in 1950, here's Father Knows Best. Mother, is Maxwell House really the only coffee in the world? Well, your father says so, and your father knows best.
Yes, it's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons, brought to you by America's favorite coffee, Maxwell House. The coffee that's always good to the last drop. There was once an ancient Greek, a lad named Zenobius, who probably didn't know a putter from the front end of a buggy whip. Yet in the year 154 A.D., he wrote, contests allow no excuses, no more do friendships. And if that doesn't describe the average golf tournament, it comes mighty, mighty close. Today in Springfield, in the white frame house on Maple Street, we find that things haven't changed a great deal in the last 18 centuries. Customs and costumes may have altered slightly, but people go on forever. Like this. But, Mother, the whole play depends on it. I told them I'd buy a new dress. I'm sorry, Betty. You had no right to tell them anything like that. Mother, you don't understand. I'm the star. I'm Camille. And how can Camille die in an old dress? She does have to manage, dear. The greatest opportunity of my life. Everyone will be watching me, and I have to die in that old rag. I'll just die. <laughs> I'm sure you will, dear. Mother, you're not even listening. Why can't I just ask him? Betty, I know it means a great deal to you, but try to think of the rest of us. Your father's having so much trouble with his car. Now, if you ask him for a new dress... <gasps> oh, dear, I told them to be careful. Bud, what are you doing out there? I wasn't doing anything, Mom. Oh, he was, too. Kathy, you and Bud come in here this very minute. Mother, couldn't we explain to him that it's really sort of an investment? Betty, please, not now. Bud, what was that noise? Noise? <laughs> you mean just now? Yes, just now. You mean the noise that sounded like a window breaking? Yes. A window broke. <laughs> Bud, which window and who broke it? It was the garage window. And a rock broke it. Mother, they've ruined everything. Now I'll never get the dress. What did we do? You broke a window, that's what. And Father will be all upset. I didn't break a window. Kathy broke it. I did not. You broke it just as much as I did. I didn't even touch the rock. Well, it was your golf club, and you told me what to do. I did not. You certainly did. I certainly didn't. Children, please. Will Father be home soon? He's home now. He is? Oh, dear. Kathy, don't you say anything to your father until I've had a chance to say... Yes, Jim? I'm home. Uh, We're in the kitchen, dear. (laughs) He would have let me have the dress. I know he would. Now he never will, and it's all your fault. Mine? Yes, yours. You and that... that junior grade Frankenstein. (laughs) Mother! Betty, please, I will not have you... Well. Oh, hello, dear. What's going on in here? Hello, Father. Hi, Dad. Hello, Daddy. How do you do, Clara, Lou, and M? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, honey. Hello, dear. As I said before, why the kitchen convention? Uh, You're home a little early, aren't you, dear? Yes, we, uh... We finished a little earlier than usual this afternoon. What's the matter with the kids? They look as though they... Dinner won't be ready for half an hour, Jim. I hope you don't mind. No, I don't mind. I said... There's so many things came up this afternoon. I've been busy trying to get them straightened out. 
Margaret. Yes, dear? What happened? Uh, what do you mean, dear? I'm being steered away from something. What is it? Daddy. I should have known. <laughs> All right, Kathy, whose window is it this time? Ours, the one in the garage. Well, that's a novelty. I guess it was my fault, too, Dad. I was showing her how to play golf. I won't ever do it again, Daddy. Well, you don't have to look so solemn about it. You certainly didn't do it on purpose. Did you? Oh, oh no, Daddy. There's nothing so terrible about breaking a window. Just an accident, that's all. Jim. Yes, Margaret? Do you feel all right, dear? <laughs> sure I feel all right. I feel fine. Why? I was just wondering... Father. Betty. <laughs> Please. But, Mother, as long as he feels that way... Jim, I told her quite definitely that it was out of the question. What is? Father, I have to have a new dress. It's for the third act of Camille, and I told the dramatic coach I would, and it's only $17, and it's just beautiful for when she dies. Who, the coach? <laughs> Father. Camille. Betty, I told you just a few minutes ago. Just a second, Margaret. If the dress is that important and uh, Betty promised, well, there's no reason why she can't get it. Father! Holy cow. After all, <laughs> it's only $17. What's that? Wait till I tell Janie Liggett. Jim, are you sure you feel all right? Never felt better in my life. Margaret, do you know what I did this afternoon? No, dear, but if you want to lie down... I beat Jim Hathaway. That's fine, dear, if you want to lie down for a while before dinner. Oh, it's pale green, Father, and it's just like pistachio whipped cream. Fine. Margaret, you don't understand. Jim Hathaway was a three-to-one favorite. He was even money to win the whole tournament, and I beat him. Don't you see what that means? I'm in the semifinals. Daddy! Holy cow, Dad, no kidding. Fifth! years and I finally made it. <laughs> the semifinals. With pale makeup and a soft spotlight. Oh, Father, I'm the happiest girl in the world. Yes, sir, 15 years. And that isn't the best part. Do you know who I have to play? Ed Davis. And if I can't beat him, I'll hang up my shoes. Why? What? Why will you hang up your shoes? That's uh, just an expression, Kathy. It means I'll give up. Wearing shoes? <laughs> no, Kathy, playing golf. Gosh, Dad, you might even win the cup, mightn't you? I certainly might. <laughs> but you should have seen the putts I dropped today. 18 feet, 20 feet, I was the hottest thing on the golf course. If I can just keep it up for two more rounds... Jim, I don't like to interrupt. But if we're ever going to have dinner... Is it all right if I call Janie, Mother? Yes, dear. Come on, Kathy. Let's go out in the backyard. I'll show you and Bud how golf should really be played. Oh, boy. I get shown first. Jim, be sure you don't wander off somewhere. We'll be right here, Margaret. I'll call you when dinner's ready. That'll be fine, honey. Say, Dad, we've been using that old five iron you gave me. Oh, wait me. a second, Bud. Say, Ed. Jim, I was just coming over to see you. Ed, did you hear what I did to Jim Hathaway? It was murder. I know. They called me for the club. Jim, I've got a terrific favor to ask of you. Okay. What's the matter with you? Oh, I, I, I've got a cold. The worst cold I've ever had my whole life. Hello, Mr. Davis. Hello, Kathy. Bud. Hi. 
Don't get too close to me. I'm a walking gerb. <laughs> Boy, you certainly picked up a pip, Jim. Would it be all right with you if we postponed our match until Sunday? Gosh, I don't know, Ed. That's when the finals are supposed to be played. I know, Jim, but I, I'm pretty sure I could lick this cold by Sunday. Then I could play the semifinals in the morning and the finals in the afternoon. <laughs> oh, you can, can you? What happened to me? Oh, Jim, let's face it. If I can't lick you, I'll hang up my shoes. <laughs> Wait a minute. I wouldn't ask you, Jim, but this is a big thing in my life. I've been trying to reach the finals for 10 years. I've been trying for 15. Oh, Jim, let's not be ridiculous. You don't stand a chance if you do it. Oh, I don't, don't I? Oh, why, I could spot you six strokes aside and still beat you, but with this cold... Well, maybe I won't win. But at least I don't go around trying to build up an alibi. Meaning what? Meaning I could beat you with or without a cold, and you know it. Jib, we've been friends for a long time. That's got nothing to do with it. Golf is golf. If you can't play tomorrow, you'll forfeit the match. Oh, that's fine. That's fine after all the things I've done for you. And you're taking the wrong attitude about this whole thing. I want to beat you fair and square. Yeah. But how can I if you let a little thing like a cold get you down? A little thing? I'm so weak I could hardly see. Sure, because you aren't trying to fight it. Jib, when you get into the house, fix yourself a hot lemonade, take two aspirins, and then concentrate. Jib, say to yourself, I haven't got a cold. Never had a cold. I'm too strong and healthy to get a cold. Believe me, it's all in your mind. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you. Remember that guy, Kuwe? Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better and better. Yeah, whatever happened to him anyway. He died. <laughs> but, Ed, it works. I've tried it. You can talk yourself out of practically anything. Yeah, you sure can. Well, if that's the way you want it, Jim. Ed, I'm trying to help you. Okay, I'll be there at the party if they have to carry me on a stretcher. And don't forget the hot lemonade and aspirin. That'll help, too. Thanks, Jim. Every day and every way, you've been a great help. See you tomorrow. Dad, we aren't going to have much time. Oh, sure we are. Where's the ball? We don't have a ball. That's why we had to use rocks. What happened to that practice ball I gave you? You know, the uh, cotton one. It's over near the garage. Well, get it. We can't. It's stuck in back of a big log. That's right, Dad. You can't reach it unless we get the log out of the way. I've never seen a more helpless pair of kids in my life. Is uh, this it? Uh-huh. Over there, in back. But uh, I'll lift the log and you reach in for the ball. Okay, Dad. Are you ready? You bet. One, two, three. Mm. Heavy, isn't it, Daddy? Well, my hands must have slipped. Uh, let's try it again, bud. Ready? Right. One, two, three. Oh! <laughs> What's the oh, matter, Dad? I don't know. Something snapped, and I... Oh, gosh. I... I can't straighten up. Daddy! Maybe your suspenders got stuck. <laughs> but... I don't wear suspenders. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Fine son you turned out to be. I'm in mortal agony and you have to make jokes. I wasn't making any jokes, Dad. Daddy! Oh, my back. What is it, Kathy? I know how you can fix it. You do, huh? Sure. All you have to say is, 
every day in every way, I'm standing upper and upper and upper. Kathy, do you know what'll happen if I take my belt off? Uh huh, your pants will fall down. Sands of time run slowly in the white frame house on Maple Street. An hour has passed, but not Jim Anderson's affliction. Surrounded by a solicitous family, Father waits the arrival of Dr. Simmons, and sympathy flows in a steady stream through the Anderson living room, like this. Jim, I've told you repeatedly, you're not a child. You can't do things like that. Like what? All I did was try to lift the... Oh, oh, oh. It hurts, huh, Dad? Of course not. I just like to groan, that's all. <laughs> Betty, what's the matter with you? Oh, nothing, Father. Then why are you staring at me? Well, it's for Camille, really. I'm doing research. What are you talking about? Oh, the play. I have to die in the third act, and you're making the most wonderful faces. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's just great. I have a broken back, and my daughter uses it for research. You know, this is the most cold-blooded family I've ever known. But, Father... Margaret, call the doctor again. Tell him it's an emergency. I did, Jim, and they said he'd be here as soon as possible. A fine doctor he turned out to be. Anytime you need him, he's out. Operating on people, delivering babies. He's never around when you need him for anything important. <laughs> uh, Father, about the dress... Betty... This is hardly the time. But, Mother, I have to go to the rehearsal. Well, go ahead. Nobody's stopping you. I can't go unless you give me the $17. Then stay home. Father! Doesn't it mean anything to you that I'm practically dying? I lie here doubled up like a pretzel? Hey, you know, I didn't have any dinner. <laughs> How can you think of food at a time like this? Well, I'm a growing boy. <laughs> we'll all have our dinner in just a little while, bud. Here's a hot water bottle, Mommy. I got it as hot as I could. Oh, thank you, dear. You're welcome. People go around breaking windows, hitting golf balls and back of logs. Jim, let me put the hot water bottle on your back. I don't want it on my back. It hurts enough the way it is. <laughs> Gosh, Dad, how are you going to play golf tomorrow? Golf? I'll be lucky if I'm still alive. Oh, no. What is it, Jim? Ed Davis. What am I going to tell him? Well, why don't you just tell him? Margaret, I can't. He'd never believe that I hurt my back. Not after the argument we had. Daddy told him about Mr. Pooey. Who? <laughs> <laughs> every day in every way. Kathy, go to bed. <laughs> I haven't had my dinner. Then behave yourself and be quiet. Yes, Daddy. Man tries to do the right thing, the honorable thing, and what happens? Nobody believes that he... Uh, Bud. Yes, Dan? Give me a hand. I uh, 
I want to get up. Okay. Jim, do you think it's wise... I've got to call Ed Davis, Margaret. I, uh, I just thought of something. Can't we call him for you? No, I've got to do it myself. Jim, please be careful. I'm being careful. You don't see me leaping into the air, do you? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Grab his other arm, Betty. Father, it's only $17. Uh, <laughs> when I was a boy, people were considerate. They were thoughtful and kind. Oh, will you, Betty? When people were dying, they at least showed them the proper respect. They didn't follow them down to the grave, hounding them for $17. There you are, Dad. How do you feel? Never mind how I feel. Just uh, help me over to the phone. Father, while you're standing up... Betty. <laughs> yes, Father? Go away. Good Father. I said go away. Bud and I can manage alone. Jumping creepers after I told everybody I was going to get... She wouldn't care if somebody dropped a bomb on my head, just as long as she got that idiotic dress. You want me to dial the Davises for you, Dad? Thank you very much, Bud. You've been a great help. Oh, that's okay, Dad. Say, Dad, you won't be able to use the car tonight, and I just thought... Well, uh, <laughs> stop thinking. You had the car last night, and that's enough. Here, let me have it. Holy cow. Hello? Oh, hello, Ed. This is Jim Anderson. Oh, hello, Jim. Say, I owe you an apology. Oh, that's all right, Ed. You know, I've been thinking things over, and uh, I don't see any reason why we can't postpone our match until Sunday. What for? Well, uh, I want you to be at your best, Ed, and that'll give you a chance to get over your cold. What cold? Jim, I... I don't know how to thank you. I did just what you said, and I feel like a new man. <laughs> you, uh, what? Oh, I've still got a couple of sniffles, but I feel great. You uh, do, huh? You certainly knew what you were talking about. Every day and every way, hey, that's a great system. It is, huh? Yes, sir. You'll have to play some pretty sharp golf to beat me tomorrow. Say, wouldn't you like to go out to the driving range and hit a few? Uh, no thanks, Ed. I, uh... I'll just uh, take it easy tonight. Okay, pal. See you in the morning. Yes, I'll, uh... <laughs> see, see you in the morning. <laughs> every day and every way, I ought to have my brains examined. What did Mr. Davis say, Dad? He feels fine, bud. Just fine. Uh, let's uh, go back to the couch. Okay. Jim, I don't understand what this is all about. If you can't play golf, why don't you tell him? Margaret, there are certain things that women just don't... Uh, let me down easy, bud. Okay, Dad. Oh. Father. Betty, you and Kathy go into the kitchen and fix your dinners. But, Mother. You've waited long enough. Now go ahead. How about me, Mom? I'm starved. You can wait a little longer, bud. The doctor may need you. Now, Jim, will you please explain all this foolishness about Ed Davis? There's nothing foolish about it, Margaret. He said he had a cold, and I said he was trying to set up an alibi. Now, if I say I hurt my back... Two grown men acting like a couple of silly schoolboys. What's so silly about schoolboys? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, bud. Margaret, unless I can convince Ed Davis... But you don't have to convince him. Dr. Simmons will certainly tell him. Say, that's right. If the doc tells me I can't play, then uh, 
I can't play, can I? Well, it's about time. But let the doctor in like a good boy. Then can I have my dinner? We'll see, dear. Holy cow. <laughs> Doctors always rushing around, never get any place, make a big production out of everything. If I ran my business the way they do, I'd be looking for a job in a week. Jim, please don't stop. Well, hello, Margaret. What's all the fuss about? Oh, hello, Doctor. It's about time you showed up, you old quack. So I'm finally going to get my hooks into you. <laughs> what do you know? Fine doctor. Listen to that bedside manner. He's going to get his hooks into me. Oh. Doctor, will you need Bud for anything? Oh, I don't think so. All right, Bud, go in and have your dinner, dear. Well, good for me. You know, Margaret, I was talking to Mrs. Swain about you the other day. Really? That's right. She was telling me about that hospital service you were trying to organize last year. It's a wonderful idea. Oh, thank you. Doc, if you have any free time next week, Margaret, why don't you drop into my office? I may be able to help you. Oh, that would be wonderful. Doc, what's the matter with you? (laughs) Remember me? I'm the emergency. Oh, I know. What's wrong with you? Oh, nothing much. Just a broken back, that's all. Yes, you you look just like a broken back. (laughs) He says it's quite painful, Doctor. Well, let's take a look at it. Turn around. I can't turn around. Oh, stop acting like a jackass. Turn around. (laughs) Calls himself a doctor. If I didn't like his sister, I wouldn't even let him in the house. (laughs) Hmm. Is that where it hurts? (laughs) You know darn well that's where it hurts. Well, hold still for a second. Uh, well, what are you going to do? Never mind what I'm going to do. Just hold still. Ow! (laughs) Okay, now go to bed and put some heat on it. Mm. Was it anything serious, Doctor? No, of course not. You know, Margaret, we've needed a volunteer service at the hospital for years. And if you can just get it started... Hey, Doc, I'm talking to Margaret. Well, I hate to interrupt anything so vital, but uh, what else do I do? I just told you, go to bed and put heat on your back. Is that all? Well, I can send a nurse around to hold your hand, if that's what you want. <laughs> you mean it, uh, it wasn't serious? It was a simple dislocation. And if you'd remember that you were 40 instead of 4, it wouldn't happen. Gosh! I can stand out. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Only 40 years old, and he can stand up. Be careful. Oh, he's all right, Margaret. In the morning, you'll never know there's anything wrong with it. Is that so? I'm as weak as a cat, and you know it. Well, it may take a few days, but you'll be all right. In the meantime, uh, I'd better stay in bed, huh? No, I wouldn't do that, Jim. If you let that spine stiffen up, you're liable to run into trouble. I'd prescribe some light exercise. Of course, you won't do so well, but uh, why don't you go over to the club in the morning and play a little golf? Oh, no! 
It's been such welcome news to see lower prices on Maxwell House coffee in the stores. And now that news is even better. These days, grocers everywhere are featuring Maxwell House at lower prices still. Now you folks who always drink Maxwell House can enjoy it at the lowest prices in months. And you folks who haven't been getting that wonderful good-to-the-last-drop flavor, now's the time to bring home a familiar blue Maxwell House tin. See how much more pleasure you find in a cup of coffee when it holds the world's most famous flavor. Flavor so rich and mellow. Flavor you can count on. Because we'll never compromise on the quality of a single pound. For wonderfully good coffee. For today's coffee buy, look for Maxwell House. Featured these days at still lower prices. The lowest prices in months. It's always good to the last drop. It's morning now, and in the white frame house on Maple Street... There's a heavy blanket of gloom in the master bedroom. This is one morning when the master feels anything but masterful. Like this, Dr. Simmons probably took his training in a school for feeble-minded veterinarians. Jim, I think you're being very foolish about this whole thing. You can't even put on your sweater alone, and how can you play golf? I don't know, but I'm going to try. Nobody's going to say I gave up without a fight. Jim. He'd only told me to stay in bed for a few days. Just one day. I could have asked the rules committee for a postponement. That's all I need. I'll be fine tomorrow. Jim Anderson, if you don't call Ed Davis this very instant... Wait a minute. If you'll just explain to him... Margaret, listen. What? Oh, honey. Have you ever heard anything more beautiful in all your life? Jim, what is it? It's raining! us again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Bargey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Don't forget, membership cards for the Robert Young Good Drivers Club are waiting for you at your local NBC station. Get a man-to-man or dad-to-daughter pledge and sign up today. Be a good driver. Get your membership card in the Robert Young Good Drivers Club today. Now, until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Now stay tuned in for the Screen Guild Theater, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Sam Spade followed by Suspense. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great evening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.